Hey everyone, it's Eric with IndieWire, and before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this week's episode of Screen Talk is once again brought to you by Vimeo, and you can go to vimeo.com slash IndieWire to see a whole bunch of movies that you can rent on that platform that I personally like very much. Now, so far I've talked about Don Hertzfeld's brilliant animated short film, World of Tomorrow, and the Zellner Brothers haunting Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, which are still available on Vimeo On Demand for a special 10% discount with the promo code ERIC10. So go to that URL, vimeo.com slash IndieWire, and use that ERIC10 promo code, and you can actually check those movies out at a discount. But this week, I want to tell you about another film you can also watch there for a discount. It's called Cheatin'. It's the latest film from the indie animator Bill Plimpton. It's one of my favorites by him, although he's done a lot of great stuff over the years and it's certainly one of the better animated movies you'll see this year it's got pretty much no dialogue but it has a lot to say about marital infidelity in ways that are both funny and insightful and a little creepy so i hope you'll go check it out use that promo code eric10 again the url is vimeo.com slash and you are and let me know what you think but for now on with the show Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, who is at the nexus of the Den of Geeks at Comic-Con, which just started today. How are you holding up out there, Ann? It's good. I went to, uh, I started out on a a bus uh, from L.A. uh, where I watched uh, (laughs) an esports documentary by wordplay filmmaker, uh, <laughs> Patrick Creed. In other words, they rented a bus, showed us the movie on the screen in the bus while we were captive, and and then they delivered us to to San Diego. <laughs> That's a rather and, uh, unorthodox way to start Comic Con. No big just one way to, you know one one way to teach us all about esports. So know, how was it? And then, pardon me, it was how, good. It was, I was okay. fascinated. So then we went down to. Um, uh, the uh, so later on we went we went in we got registered we wasn't back because it's early and we went into the exhibition hall and, and I just love it I love seeing all the people and all the all the you know the, the, the displays of the Batman outfit and the Superman outfit and you know uh, fur backa and uh, you know the the Doctor Who stuff and the, you know Sherlock so I'm going to go to a Sherlock panel uh, later uh, today um, and then today there was a hip party last night up on top of the uh, you know uh, Hotel Solomir what's fun about that is that there's literally nothing else going on every major movie outlet uh, you know all the you know from from Collider and uh, the Village Voice and uh, Entertainment Weekly and uh, um, Movies.com and you know coming attractions you know you have uh, you name it Collider you know Flash Film uh, they, they everybody was was there and uh, you know everybody caught up with everyone else it's sort of like their convention Comic Con you know all of the movie geeks are are here on mass you know this is their big event. Uh, every every year, and then today uh, the first panel was Open Road, uh, where Bill Murray made his first appearance um, at the con, and he was absolutely charming. He was promoting uh, um, Rock the Casbah, where he plays a CD uh, aging rock promoter who's 
ends up in Afghanistan, you know, for the show. Um, and he, he was right. He was telling us about shooting in Morocco and being on top of a of, of a an aging palace, looking at the stars. It was very. Uh, it was interesting. He was very philosophical and very wise and very funny and and making and having a wonderful time and interacting with the uh, fans when they asked him questions. It's so interesting because, I mean, it's, one of the things about Comic-Con is that you, you do see these established talents who you wouldn't necessarily assume would have an affinity for that scene, but there's something about the way in which the fandom there is, is so responsive to these people where they kind of get into the groove, right? He's a, he has the skills of a stand-up comedian, Bill Murray, and he's very sharp and witty, right. as you would expect, and... So he, but he was also sweet. He was very sweet. He was like, he's got the gravitas of, of an older star who knows how to himself at the same time that he knows what his persona is and at the same time that he's being true to himself. He's not putting anything on. He's beyond that at this point. So he was, he was really funny, and, but sweet. He wasn't being mean to anyone. He was being quite lovely, actually. I, I was quite in love with him. <laughs> And does Rock the Casbah look as lovable as Bill Murray himself? We shall see. We shall see. Um, and then the other, uh, the other um, panel right after that was The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2, with Jennifer Lawrence and Josh Hutcherson and Francis Lawrence and uh, Nina Jacobson and, and uh, obviously uh, Liam Hemsworth. And, and they were all uh, in good form. Uh, Jennifer does a shtick. Where she's basically, uh, I'm so bad at this. I'm so bad at this. The boys do a shtick for there. Oh yeah, that was fine. You, you were smart there. That that was good. And she's very sharp about sort of playing on her image by you know wiping her nose on the dais uh, tablecloth or or lecturing you know Conan about not. Uh, uh, <laughs> She wasn't using a crossbow. She was using a longbow, which is much harder than a crossbow. <laughs> and she, you know, she was hilarious and, and delightful. And, of course, they were talking about how sad it is that they're ending. It reminds me, of course, of the, the way that all the Twilight people were doing that, too. You know, So they're, they're hyping up the last film in the series, which will undoubtedly be the biggest, hugest box office success of the lot. And they showed some footage, a full, a full trailer, uh, which, you know, she gets into action and there, there's a full rebellion and there's battles and, and action and, and uh, you know, she's no longer sort of hesitating by, you know, worrying about whether she should take charge. She's taking charge. You know, it's, I'm really curious to, to see how that movie came President out because no. it, it's, it's part of this... I wouldn't say it's exactly a trend, but a tendency that we've seen more recently to split books into two and kind of you know milk it for whatever it's worth and then some and I found the last one kind of fascinating because of that because it felt like it was just a piece of this story I mean it it almost wasn't a fully realized she was hardly there she was depressed you know yeah which I kind of liked it because it was so weird in that sense but it does make me want to see you know what part of the story this is going to tie into when it you know all hell breaks loose in the climax yeah, you know, this is a, this, this will deliver for the fans. Everybody is obviously, and it's one of those things where you're in the hall and everyone's screaming, you know, whenever Liam Hemsworth uh, or or Josh Hutcherson or or her, I mean, they're all screaming. <laughs> 
So why do you think that it will be the biggest box office success? I mean, that's something we're sussing out a little bit. You know, why do these things not level off and just keep making the same amount of money each time out? I mean, is, is the hype greater for the last movie than it was for the it's second because, one? It's because it's going, yes, they're going to, they, this is the last, you know, this is the last one. Well, people, well, most of the people who go to these movies have read the books all the way, right? You know, and, and, uh, and this one is the conclusion. Everything comes to an end. Everything is is, is uh, uh, finally resolved, and and there's a lot of emotion and a lot according to the filmmakers. Um, and and everything gets closed up. That they they were talking about that. They were talking about how to how how important it was to uh, you know be true to the books and deliver uh, you know a real story that would would play. And and they the only reason I'm saying that it's going to be the biggest the trend has been that the last one of a series like The Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or uh, Twilight does deliver at the box office because it, it finally uh, is the last time they're going to be with these characters. You know, and it's funny because a couple of weeks ago I did a Reddit AMA and somebody asked if what they thought, what we thought would be the biggest box office success of the year. And, uh, I mean, at that point it seemed like Jurassic Park, but with Hunger Games and the new Star Wars movie coming, I think it, it's kind of an open field in some sense towards no, the end of the year. No, no, no. It's going to be impossible to be Jurassic World. <laughs> Jurassic World is too big. Even Star Wars would have a shot at it. Um, because it has that same kind of nostalgia factor, and all these people grew up with the Star Wars movies, and it just, you know, there's a whole there's generations of people who care deeply about these characters. That it, even if they deliver it on a dime and it's perfect and everything, J.J. Abrams, you know, does as good a job as he did with Star Trek, um, you know, it, 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 it will be very difficult to, to outpay. Jurassic World, which has been a success on a scale that you can't really even conceive of. It's so big. I think it's fascinating to talk about movies in this scale uh, in light of some of the news that we received earlier this week about Paramount releasing a couple of movies on digital platforms just 17 days after their theatrical release. I mean, these are not movies that were necessarily going to be as big as Star Wars or Jurassic World or a Hunger Games movie, but the Six Paranormal Activity movie and Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, I mean, these are, these are kind of smaller genre movies, but still studio movies that are being released uh, so close to their theatrical release that it's, it's pretty radical by at least studio standards. Certainly in the indie space, we've seen windowing being a different kind of a thing for a long time and day-and-date releases been a standard for a lot of movies for several years now. So basically, I did some research on this, um, and I spoke to um, the uh, one of the people at NATO, the theater owners organization, and I spoke to someone at Paramount also, because um, what this is, is is radical. I mean, this is the first time that the theaters and a studio have actually worked in concert and, and put it through, um, you know, in a way that didn't get everybody angry and upset. There are other times that this has been done, uh, not the same model, but uh, different experiments have been done that ended up with the exhibitors feeling ripped off and angry and, and the studio jumping on. This time, everybody was in court. And it basically is their attempt to uh, create a more fluid and responsive 
environment where you, you you take a movie, you give it a theatrical run that is as long as it needs to be, whether it's best or whether it blows off really quickly, and then you move right ahead with all the marketing behind you that you just spent a fortune on to the next, up to the different next platform. And if you're doing it ahead of the 90-day window that has been established with uh, the theaters, then whatever amount of money they make on all those digital platforms during that period of time, and they have various percentages and formulas for how they're going to split it, will go back to uh, you know be shared with the with the distributors with the exhibitors. And this is a, a so radical, uh, and it, everybody's excited about it because it actually could really work. And there apparently has been. Um, some experiments along these lines uh, that work really well in South Korea, where these uh, it grew the box office. It grew. That's what the theaters are freaked out about. They're they're frightened that they will lose customers. And I think there's also more uh, push for having you know a, a point of sale, a, a, a possibility of being able to sign up for the DVD and everything right when you see the movie, too. So there's all sorts of movement in this area. But, I mean, South Korea has such a... is is not the same kind of population that the United States is. I mean, it seems like it's a higher risk, and they're dealing with movies that they're not totally discardable, but they're certainly not the kinds of things that, you know, are really any indicator of whether this approach could work for a lot of stuff, right? I mean, it's almost like... They could just do well, they it took, two movies. They took yeah. a couple of low-stakes movies, the a paranormal sequel and, and another horror thing. Uh, but but the, but the movies, what they're going to do is they're going to crunch the numbers. And the, the experiment has to be conducted before they can see, you know, what the impact is. And what happened is that there was this uh, hot tub time machine thing where they released it and then it died immediately in the theaters and MGM had the rights to the home video and so Paramount was able to uh, have the liability with the theaters. They were pissed. They were angry. But MGM went ahead and did the home video and the movie and it did really well right away on top of all of the surge of, of marketing that they had done. This gap between the initial marketing when a movie is hot and everybody wants to see it, and, and there's also another gap, which is interesting, which is the idea that you would have a, a movie that everybody would want to see for two or three weeks, and then it wouldn't be so hot to see anymore. There's a tipping point where people say, oh, I'll wait, I'll wait sure. to see it on home video. Right. And if home video was available right away, if it was available then, yeah, I mean, you uh, know, it not I fully it. adjusted um, to using demand, it. It would be really good. Yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've fully adjusted to using an Apple TV and, and, and browsing the top movies on iTunes, and when things show up there that are recently in theaters that for one reason or another I missed, it's very easy for me to get caught up, and so I almost feel like something that happened naturally in which people who are just used to watching things at home get used to waiting for certain stuff is now going to define a little bit more the market standard for certain kinds of movies. But, you know, I, I think it'll be a little bit of time before we see a big Marvel release or something. No, 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 no. They're not going to do that yet. This is an early stages of a, of a long, ongoing experiment, and they're going to tweak it, and they're going to figure out what the right... And so I like the idea that, that you could let the market dictate 
Um, you see, the problem is that the city does have a much more flexible, you know, they, it's in their interest to, to go to all the different places that they can go to make money on a movie. Why wouldn't they? It's theaters that are their partners that are arguing for, you know, you have to respect our space so that we have only one way to make money. They really have two ways, which is concessions and getting people you know, into the movie. But, 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 but this is where they can share. The other question on the theater side is how much will that revenue be? You know, will it be significant enough? Will it even be equivalent to what they're losing uh, by leaving the theaters? And that's an, that's, but a lot of these movies leave the theaters anyway. That's why I find this whole thing with the 90 days ridiculous. How many movies actually stay in the theaters for 90 days? Right. I mean, the way in which word of mouth, you know, jumps from one subject to another in, in any, you know, topic, not just movies, is, is just sort of the standard now. So, I mean, it, it just makes sense to make these things available however you can at the time when people aren't going to be automatically talking about them anymore. And I think theater owners are in a position where they should be thinking more, how do we make the theatrical experience better and more appealing to people? And can we make it less expensive? Or can we make the experience more enjoyable in other kinds of ways? And it, it makes you think about where we're going to be in 30 years, 50 years, 100 years. You know, when the theatrical program well, is definitely going to be different. I think where we're going to be in five years is, is more, you know, because, because part, of what, part of what this is all about is just um, creating this sort of seamless flow you know, from one medium to, to, to the other, sure. you know, one platform to the other. And I think that that is, is in fact, very much um, where we're going. And, and, and if, if they can argue that they're enhancing, that they're building, that they're growing the revenues on these movies by doing it this way, which I argue they will, um, I think that's going to make a big, a big impact. Um, and they, the studios are freaking out because the young audience is been going to the movies. This is, this is exactly who they're targeting with these two films. They're targeting millennials. Sure. And I also think that it, it's going to do well for movies that people may, in, you know, sort of not necessarily be totally convinced about because word of mouth isn't totally out there yet. And I want to use one example that we should talk about anyway, which is Ant-Man, a movie that I think a lot of people were dismissive of. I mean, I saw the trailer for Ant-Man in theaters and people were laughing because it just seemed so inherently silly. And I guess the premise is, once you see you see it, it's actually really fun and um, it, reasonably well-directed, although Edgar Wright, who was originally supposed to direct it and has a story credit with Joe uh, Cornish, it seems to be the one who really came up with the right idea here, which is to tell a really fun, playful story that still is at its heart a very traditional kind of genre movie. I mean, it's essentially a crime caper, and it was much more coherent than Avengers 2. I was really satisfied with it. And it's the kind of movie where I think, okay, box office-wise, yeah, it might, maybe it'll do okay, but I think more people are going to discover this movie and enjoy it and talk about it. And with time, it may emerge as one of the better of the Mar Marvel enterprises. What, what was your take on it? I was so bored by this movie that I fell asleep. <laughs> oh, um, really? I, I mean, it, it's so really you didn't get to all the good so parts. <laughs> familiar, uh, it, I must have, because it's so familiar. I mean, you have you have the the uh, alienated inventor who leaves the uh, the the company that, that that with his invention in hand and his his evil uh, replacement 
played by the uh, you know is going to uh, use it for nefarious purposes, and then um, this young guy with a chip on his shoulder falls for the guy. Daughter is, is going to uh, you know use this invention and and fall and you know win the girl and I had I just have to say I was I it all seemed so familiar to me and I'm not um, you know the, the actors were were okay but I wasn't caught up in any of these characters in any way and I I, I enjoyed best the parts where he became the Ant Man and was you know running around in, in giant sets and everything, however they were created, CG sets, and, and that was fun, the idea that he could be little little guy, but there wasn't that much of it. No, but I thought that was actually what was so interesting about the movie, and look, I'm not going to make any big arguments for it as some sort of grand masterpiece, you know, the blockbuster movie we're talking about this year is still Mad Max, but that being said, I, there's something about the smallness of this movie and, there, and a certain kind of light charm to it. It almost felt like an Oceans movie or something to me. It just the, the idea of Paul Rudd's character being this kind of unwitting hero who's pulled into this kind of bizarre scheme to steal this technology that Michael Douglas's character dreamed up. It's, it's pretty basic in certain ways, but the way that it plays out is, is pretty entertaining and I don't think it, it asks too much and at the same time, there, there is more going on there. I mean, he's a divorced guy who's trying to kind of win over his daughter, and there's something kind of almost like Capra-esque about the efforts that he makes to go through this ridiculous experience to win her back. I, I just felt like it, it doesn't exactly have soul, but by Hollywood studio standards, it's the closest you're going to get with this sort of fluff, and that, to me, is a lot more satisfying than so many other things that you see made on much bigger scales. I mean, if you look at Daredevil on Netflix, it's a similar kind of a thing, you know, it's like CSI in the Marvel Universe or something, and, or, or Law and Order. I mean, it just feels like if you, if you reduce these things to more basic genre elements, they can be more satisfying. At the same time, maybe your expectations were for something that was going to be bigger or more surprising. No, God, no. I had low expectations, and, and, and I, I, I never was, you know, I think when you have the Avengers, you have a lot of very familiar characters that you're fond of, and, and I'm, 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 I enjoyed all the Avengers movies, I, I enjoyed all the build-up to them, and the, the, the Captain America, the Thor, the Iron Man, except for Iron Man 2. I would argue that Iron Man 2 is the worst of them all. I would I agree. I Thor 2, and uh, this is my second worst one, uh, at, you know, with I. I, I, did, were you awake for? I have to ask. This, I like the Marvel ones. What, were you awake for the big finale, the the, the, the where the effects really do of come into course. play? Of course, I'm talking. I'm, I'm being. You know, I nodded out a little bit. I didn't literally sleep through the <laughs> well, second half. Of we got to clarify this because the movie's I saw ending the finale, is pretty. Definitely. But the, the, I woke there's up a, for the finale. The finale is, it does have a certain psychedelic element. I don't want to totally spoil here. It reminded me a little bit of the ending of, of the Incredible. Shrinking Man, classic film. There's this sort of threat of whether or not he will shrink so tiny that he ceases to exist that kind of continues over the course of the movie, and I thought that was a really interesting kind of existential idea that they play around with a lot. I don't know. I mean, it, it felt it felt better than other things that I have to contend with 
that are made on that level. But again, you know, I'm lowering my expectations because a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing and that I'm championing is completely outside of this paradigm. So we're looking at it from two different angles in certain ways, I guess. But, you know, that movie's opening next week. There's stuff opening yeah. this week. Yeah, I think you may have related more. Yeah, to Paul yeah that's true. That's I've always cute. wanted to be a, a divorced guy trying to steal a suit that lets me shrink to a subatomic no. level. <laughs> it's, a, it's, the, it's the nerdy, it's the, excuse me, it's the, it's the nerdy guy who, you know, seeks to prove himself and uh, shows everybody that he can, that he can be, rise to the hero of occasion. That's what all these movies are. <laughs> I guess, but Evangeline Lilly, you know, she's pretty badass in this movie, too. Maybe I related to some of I liked her. I liked her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to do well, though, probably. I, I, I hope the it numbers does. Are, the, numbers, the numbers are suggesting that it will open well. It'll certainly do better than the movies opening this week that we should talk about because the, the stuff that we're singling out uh, in terms of new releases is on a totally different scale. One of them we've hinted at a little bit before because it was at Sundance and it's played some other places. Tangerine is finally opening. I think this is a fantastic movie. As we've said before, it was shot on an iPhone. It's about two transgender prostitutes in L.A. It's kind of a buddy comedy. It takes place over the course of one day. Um, and the the stars of the movie... You've never seen performances like this before because Sean Baker, who directed this movie, found them and got them to basically make their big screen debuts in a way that really feels legitimate. And, and Maya Taylor, in particular, is this really big personality in the movie, and I think she's a true discovery. I mean, it's it's overdue that we have these kinds of roles out there, obviously. It's a little embarrassing that as a culture we haven't figured out a way to, you know, give transgender actors an ability to act in movies that lots of people can see, but it feels like a step in the right direction because this is a really fun, accessible movie, irrespective of, you know, what you might be used to. And I think you, you feel similarly, right? Oh, yeah, I love this movie. I also appreciate... Um the skill that Sean Baker, I mean, these two great characters are so good, but part of what's great about it is that it's set on the street. It's in, you know, the Santa Monica area of Hollywood where there are um, uh, transgender prostitutes, and, and he, he it's, it's very familiar to anyone who lives in L.A., and, but it's all people walking around on the street, taking the bus, taking the subway. It's, it's very mobile, and the camera, the iPhone He's like three of them with a, with a special anamorphic lens and, and special, you know, he had a good sound team. They were running around, putting, getting on bicycles. They were swooping in. They were, they were getting up close in a, in a really new way. And that was, it worked with this material. So uh, you felt like you were inside this donut shop or inside this club where uh, Maya, you know, sings. And you're just on the street in a way that was exciting. Yeah, and I, I think it's something that, it provides a good excuse for checking out Sean Baker's other films because he's made a lot of them and most people probably haven't seen them. His last one, Starlet, was about a porn star in L.A. and it was a bigger production somewhat, but it's still kind of off the beaten path. But Takeout is a really great movie about a, a Chinese delivery man in Chinatown. And then he also did a movie called Prince of Broadway that was about uh, this, this guy who sells counterfeit purses in, in Chinatown played by somebody who actually does that, who suddenly winds up finding out that he's a dad, and it's this sort of budding parent comedy. Um, and I just, I love the idea of taking these characters that were not used to see, being seen represented in American cinema and 
folding them into a format that's accessible to us. And the story surrounding Mia Taylor in particular is one that I think is, is galvanizing people, and I hope it gets out there a little bit more. I've actually had people working on the movie try to stir up a conversation about whether or not she's a candidate for award season, and maybe that's taking it too far. But at the same time, you do have to ask yourself, when you see a movie like this, and you see a performance that, that, that is this strong and entertaining and sticks with you, as, as this one certainly has, uh, why wouldn't this be an awards contender? Is it just too too scrappy? Or well, I it... think so, yeah. I mean, I don't want to dismiss her performance at all. It's terrific. They're both really good. Um, but they're kind of non-pros. And if there, if there is a, a... They give great performances, but, but I, I have a... I, I think it, was, it might be too easy for actors looking at this to say that they're playing themselves or, or some such thing. Um, I'm, I'm not sure this will get, get seen widely enough or be pushed hard enough for, for that whole. But you know what? If you guys in the you know, if critics champion this and put it on their 10 best list and vote for Mia Taylor at the end of the year as the best actress, you know, that'll, that'll make people put this on their screener pile and watch it. That's what needs to happen. I feel comfortable recommending it to people irrespective of what sort of things they're used to seeing, whether they might be considering seeing Ant-Man or, or Minions this weekend or something to that effect. Did this you week. see Minions? I actually did not. It's really entertaining. To, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, I will see Minions when it's available on my Apple TV. It's one of those things where I, I'm, sure I, I'm sure it's fun, but I just don't prioritize a movie like that because I feel like the rest of our culture is going to jump on it and talk about it. But if you say it's good, then I'll, I'll make sure that as soon as it's on my my Apple TV, I'll be clicking the play button. Okay. But the other movie that's opening this week we definitely should dig into is 10,000 Kilometers because it's another one of those smaller productions that is incredibly effective with a, a definite economy of means and in terms of its production. I mean, it's about a long-distance relationship with a couple... A Spanish couple, and one of them moves away, and the other one of them's in Spain, and the other's in LA. And uh, the first 24 minutes of the movie are one unbroken shot, and then the rest of it, after one of them leaves, the woman leaves, is uh, through Skype calls and, and text messages and so forth. And, and so it's very much a 21st century depiction of this long distance relationship through you know all these media that are really familiar to us but it does it with a certain kind of delicacy that it felt to me like an intimacy i hadn't totally seen represented in the movies before although certainly precedents like the before trilogy are there in the dna but it just it's really centralized around the performances and a certain tenderness uh to the to the way that the these characters are depicted that i felt was was quite authentic what was your read on it no, I actually really, uh, there's a lot of sex, and, and what they do is in those first um, few minutes is they, they really establish the bond between the, two, the man and the woman. And, and, you know, but it's also about what really happens in relationships. You know, do you go and do the thing that's going to be good for your career, or do you take a, a chance that a year apart that the relationship could actually survive that and uh, what this movie shows uh, rather um, um, horrifically is, 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 is how terribly um, uh, a relationship suffers when when that physical bond is taken away I mean you can't kiss you can kiss the screen or you can have conversations or you can try to 
show each other where you are, but it's not the same. And uh, it's a very, uh, it's a very good movie. I, I recommend it too. Yeah, and there's a great moment where they dance with each other's laptops while they're on Skype. It's just so. I mean, it's it's strange. It almost sounds still silly when you describe it, but it but there's something just so so real and 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 uh, just remarkable about seeing how these people are trying to form a bond with the kind of limits at their disposal. But I I also I mean, it goes back to a larger conversation. I, I see a movie like this that works so well and it, it resonates emotionally and there's not much to it in terms of how you tell the story. I mean, certainly cinematically it's an achievement to make things like Skype calls visually interesting, but I wish that we were seeing movies like this being made on all kinds of levels. I mean, why spend a whole lot of money on a big budget movie when all you need is two actors and a basic premise. What what's the hold back here? Why 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 does why does this have to be a tiny movie that has to fight to get out there and not one of the bigger movies coming out this week? Anybody could watch well, this. Well one movie of the things that I find when I talk to people, for example, who are in the Academy is is they'll they'll see uh, a movie that I admire, like uh, I'm not using Tangerine as a specific example, but it, it has been. I have I have recognized over the years that there are many films that I think are you know what was the most example yeah the five that was screened for the Academy and it did not play well at all for them and it wasn't just because it was so extremely grim or tough or or violent or or they were you know assaulting women or whatever it was that might have upset them in terms of the content it was about the way it was made. And so it, it, there's a there's a there's a, a we forgive and accept uh, a certain level of indie scruffiness um, and even you know uh, cherish it um, in, in the case of Ten Thousand Kilometers. But I have to say, if you watch Ten Thousand Kilometers on your computer, as I did, um, you, you there's a temptation to be a little distracted. I mean, if you have a movie that you're not you know. Um, 100% focused on in a theater uh, that, that doesn't have a lot of, of bells and whistles to keep your attention, um, it, it, can, it can lose some of its uh, impact. It can, it, can, it, it can be less than compelling. <laughs> Finally, it's, it's a, and foreign films have issues with that, too. People, sure. people have uh, problems with that. So there are all sorts of reasons why a movie like that can stay small and why Broad Green is releasing another uh, you know, foreign language film that may not do well um, at the box office. People want people want a certain amount of production value when they go to the theater. It's just the way it is. I think what, what this points to is that movies like this require a certain sort of experimentation, and if that experimentation is not there, you're underserving the movies. I, I hope 10,000 Kilometers gets out there but it, it already has been out there in various kinds of ways. A couple of weeks ago, I was actually asked to introduce this movie at a condo in Brooklyn. There was a, a fancy condo. There's actually a Times piece out there about this. The, these, these kind of posh communities where they, they do programming for the residents. And so they partnered with uh, BAM, and BAM chose the movie and asked me to introduce it. And I basically told people in my introduction stick around, watch this movie, and tell people about it if you like it, because it's something that you're going to discover, and if you feel like you've made a discovery, you have an obligation to share that with other people. And people did reach out to me afterwards and tell me how much they loved it, and they just happened to see this movie because they live in this condo. And 
I don't know. I mean, it, going back to the conversation we're having about just where the theatrical marketplace is going and so forth, that there's something that felt appropriate to me about movies that are made in ways that aren't the easiest to, to get, you know, a broad kind of acclaim and, and, and attention being placed into different kinds of environments and experimenting with how you get them out there and taking advantage of the fact that people want the media to come to them. They don't want to go out and find these things. And, and you can sort of smuggle stuff into that equation. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to take advantage of the changes that are taking place right now, whether you're Paramount or you're Broad Green Pictures. No question about it. It's an exciting time. And frankly, I love talking about this more than award season in Comic-Con, but I know you've got to go run back and do that, so I'll let you get back to the thick of things, and, and you can report back. Take it easy, and Look out for people in bad seats. And have a good vacation. <laughs> We're going to get together with Kate next week. That's right. I won't be around next week. I'll be on vacation, so you'll be hearing from Kate Erblind, our, our new managing editor, who's fantastic. But... Um, I'll be around eventually, and, and I'll be tuning in, so can't wait. Have fun. Have fun. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. It's Eric again. Just a quick reminder that you can go to vimeo.com slash IndieWire and watch a whole bunch of movies that I personally like very much, and if you use the promo code ERIC10, you can watch a great animated movie called Cheatin', you can watch the brilliant short film World of Tomorrow, and you can watch a movie called Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, which defies description, although if you've seen Fargo, that might help, and you can get a discount. So go check those movies out and let me know what you think. Till next time. The famous man, everybody who knew said, There goes Dixon's girl again. Even the walls are leaning closer when she plays the piano real soon. Haven't met too many women in this business that I really like. like, like, like. You could hold a little liquor, you could hold the conversation, you could hold your own.